Hello everyone, my name is Mark Blythe and I'm the director of The Road Centre. This is The Road Centre podcast. In conversation today we have Albena Asmanova, IWM Visiting Fellow at the Institute for Human Studies in Vienna, an author of the wonderful book Capitalism on Edge, How Fighting Precarity Can Achieve Radical Change Without Crisis or Utopia. Now that sounds like a big order and she tackles a lot in her book, but let me tell you why I find it so fascinating. People like me who write about the contemporary condition usually think of inequality as the problem. And Albena would not say that it's not a problem, but to use the Star Wars analogy, these are not the droids you're looking for. You see, if inequality is the big bad bogey thing that we think it is, why is it that we're not in a revolutionary situation anyway? And why is it that if we look at this thing called populism, and for the moment let's call it populism, it seems to be working more on the right than on the left? What is it that the right offers people? This is something that people on the left and the kind of reformist side of things never really think about. Well, they offer security. They offer stability, even if it comes in the form of hierarchy and nation. In a world which is increasingly unsettled, that's kind of attractive. And that's why the notion of precarity, having precarious work, precarious employment, a precarious life, really is the step that we need to take more seriously to understand what's going on beyond the brute facts of inequality themselves. So with that as my wind-up, let's start with this question. Albena, why did you write this book? And more importantly, why did you feel you had to write this book? Thank you, Mark. Um, it brings me back uh, almost 10 years ago uh, or more when um, the European Parliament approached me. That was 2003, uh, almost 20 years ago, uh, to, to ask how come, despite... Um, good conditions of economic growth and unemployment back in the late 90s, early 21st century, the left was losing elections in Europe. What was going on? There was a, a rise of protest parties, not amidst the economic crisis, like we are being told. Now that the story is that what drives uh, anti-establishment sentiment is the economic crisis. No, those parties and movements started to mobilize in conditions of good economic growth. In the, the 90s were the most prosperous decade in the 20th century, but we started to see anti-establishment mobilizations. So actually that book started with a, a, an excellent question um, that people who had to confront that problem uh, wanted me to answer. And I discovered that what was uh, driving that anxiety amidst prosperity was a sense of uh, unstable livelihoods. Uh, for instance, that is why uh, uh, at the um, referendum for the European Constitution, the draft Constitution for Europe in 2004, so before the economic crisis, um, there was uh, this um, narrative against the Polish plumber. So the Polish plumbers are coming to get our jobs. So this fear of job loss, fear of loss of livelihood was undergirding the rising xenophobic sentiment. So I've been speaking about that as economic xenophobia. It takes the language of, of, of hatred of others, but it is really driven by, not by impoverishment, but by instability. So then what's causing the instability, right? We have prosperity, as you say, in those decades. This is before the crisis. What's propelling the sense of instability? Well, there were 
two things going on. So the 90s were the decade when um, the, the, the latest wave of globalization really happened. Governments you know, adopted the formula. Uh, if you remember before, it was um, uh, Smith abroad, Keynes at home. Uh, it became all, all Smith. Um, so free market logic, opening uh, of the economy, uh, of national economies to the global markets, plus the digitalization of the economy. That changed a lot the, the face of globalization. And as uh, competition in the global markets increased, and that was coupled with the ideological consensus between the left and the right domestically on free market capitalism, then there was a, a, a subtle but very important policy shift in priorities of governments. Competitiveness became the keyword, not competition. Competition is the keyword for the neoliberal uh, era. Our era really prays to the God of competitiveness. Now, in order to make your economy competitive, you have to do tricks like diminish the competition for specific actors. Governments started to help national champions to make them even more competitive in the global economy. But as these powerful economic actors were helped and competition on them decreased, there was just less to, to, to do for, for the rest. So competition increased among the rest of the economic actors. This is how I, I see the landscape. So with increased competition on everybody but those hand-picked capitalists, Everybody's position became more precarious. The unemployed suffer because they cannot get into the labor market. The labor market insiders that we so envy with the people with the good jobs and the good salaries, they can never leave the labor market because out of insecurity. So these seemingly opposing grievances uh, have a common root in my analysis. And this is the increased competitive pressures uh, on everybody. An example of this, I'm just going to throw out there for the listener, and if you want to comment on it, then great. And essentially, you're telling a, a great macro version of the story that happened in Germany. So you had very much privileged insiders working in the export-related industries, particularly the auto industries. And in order to boost that and make that the growth model in this more globalized era, you got the Hart's labor reforms, which essentially wiped out the floor on minimum wages, at least temporarily, created a large service sector of poorly paid employment, which, as you say, is increasingly precarious. These are the types of jobs that it's hard to hold down. You don't know your hours. They are, as the Germans called them, mark job, right? One mark jobs. And, you know, these are below minimum wage, and yet there are two million jobs in the economy. So you're impoverishing many in order to boost the competitiveness of some. One of the things you talk about early on in the book that I really want to bring out here, and you just alluded to it at the end, is the paradox of emancipation. Can you unpack that? Because it's <laughs> such a great idea. And then I'm going to do a reading from the book, which I just think is brilliant. So you unpack it, then I'll read it. Okay, so as I was uh, researching and discovering that precarity is the real malaise of our societies, that all of a sudden I was hearing a talk all about inequality. So we were hearing from politicians and academics that inequality is the curse of our time. Um, even academic degrees in inequality studies started to be established. 
So I was thinking, oh my God, I mean, we have such a huge problem with with massive precarity and people fuss about that some have more than others. How come? So I was really surprised because inequality has always been a feature of capitalism. How come at that particular point we started to be so obsessed with inequality? So for me, that was the, a puzzle. Now, as a, as a political theorist, I, I've written another book on, on judgment and justice. And I have observed that with the feminist struggles, you know, with the, of the, the latest generation of feminism, as women wanted to gain equality with men on the labor market. They wanted in the labor market and they wanted to be equal. They actually valorized, they put additional value on the rat race, on being in and competing. And that weakened uh, the impetus of the working class to fight, you know, to fight capitalism, to fight for actually less work, not more work. That's what I call the paradox of emancipation, that very often, if we are fixated on concerns with entering in and being equal, equality and inclusion, not only that we overlook what's going on in this model, with all the kinds of injustices that are produced outside, you know, besides inequality and inclusion, but we further validate, we value even more that club in which we want to be members. So this is very much like, again, something earlier in the book that you mentioned, which people have read but have never really thought about, at least I haven't, which was the Indignatos slogan, mm -hmm. that we are not against the system, the system is against us. That's right. It's a cry for inclusion within a system which in and of itself, because of its competitive logic and its focus on competitiveness, basically is immiserating you the minute you join because there's no exits apart from it. If I can just read this bit because it really sums yeah. it up nicely. This is from um, the chapter on precarity capitalism. The elimination of power inequalities within a system of social relations is valuable in its own right, but such efforts have tended to divert attention away from forms of domination rooted in the operative logic of the social system beyond a concern with equality and inclusion within that system. This is not an unfortunate oversight. It can be remedied easily. It is driven by a compelling logic. The insistence on inclusion and, and, and equality within a certain model of well-being gives that model validity and vigor. We have to value the world within which we seek inclusion and equality. And the harder the struggle to achieve access and status within that world, the more that we value it. That is, so this, so this is the other side. When we think of precarity, we tend to think of, you know, labor markets becoming more fragile, zero hour contracts, et cetera, all of which is there. But you're also pointing out something else that I don't think anyone else has really pointed out. This runs all the way to the top because no one gets to escape. Right, everyone in a sense is suffering the pressures of precarity. It's not just the bottom; it filters all the way up. Can you can you talk exactly. about that? Yes, I really strongly believe that it is precarity, not inequality, that hurts. You know, the ninety nine uh, percent. That's the real grievance. And when you listen, for instance, to the yellow vests in in France. Um, uh, as I did uh, about their grievances, they don't talk about inequality. They hardly mention inequality. They talk about incapacity to pay their bills. They talk about impoverishment, job insecurity, things like this. 
they're not comparing themselves to others, which, you know, inequality implies that comparison with others. And actually, it is not easy to compare yourself to others. We don't see how much others have. Also, let's not forget that in capitalism, the poor often envy the rich, they admire them. So there is not um, so much uh, concern with inequality on the end of the um, impoverished people. But curiously enough, precarity runs all the way to the top indeed. The rich and the highly skilled suffer precarity either because their money is invested, let's say, in volatile financial markets, or because of the performance pressures they have on their jobs. So they end up with a variety of mental stress disorders. Uh, they're basically miserable, although they're envied as being the winners of capitalism and of globalization. In the book, I review surveys of millionaires who say that they would much rather not work and step out, uh, enjoy their lives, but they remain trapped in their lucrative jobs because they're either worried that their investments are insecure or they worry about their children and their grandchildren, that they're not going to make it. So yeah, precarity goes all the way from the bottom to the top. Let me sort of back out of this. Now, more traditional scholars would then say, okay, so what we need to do is rebuild the welfare state, right? Because that's decommodification, that gives you an exit, right? You do not think that is sufficient or likely. Why is that? Uh, well, that's that's the default answer. Now, we're so nostalgic for the welfare state, and that's dangerous. Because what the welfare state did is um, create wealth through um, stress on consumption and production. And this consumption and production, on the one hand, destroyed the environment. On the other hand, created a sense of justice around an entitlement to be middle class and increasingly affluent. This is not, not only unsustainable, it is, it is just stupid. It, it, this cannot be our ideal of well-being around how much we can consume and how much we can destroy the environment. Uh, so uh, it is both wrong and no longer feasible, this model of, of uh, progressive politics. So the problem is that the two components of the contemporary agenda of progressive transformation, namely ecological and social justice, are intention. If we understand social justice as growth and redistribution and ecological justice as transitioning to a more sane process of consumption, transportation, production, etc. These two things are intention. We cannot plausibly expect people to endorse the green transition if their livelihoods are invested in jobs that destroy the environment. So I'm proposing that we refocus the idea of social justice from growth and redistribution to fighting precarity, fighting for economic stability, not for affluence, not for equality in affluence. Because people might endorse less material prosperity as long as their lives are secure. So that is going to, in my mind, going to make the ecological and the social justice agendas finally compatible. 
So before we leave it, though, let's really unpack precarity once more. It's not just competitiveness that's driving this. You have this argument, which is similar in a sense to the work of Danny Blanchflower and people like this, on where the good jobs have gone. Basically, they're just we aren't generating the type of jobs that would make capitalism in its old form sustainable. Now we're generating what David Graeber called bullshit jobs. We've got a lack of good jobs in Danny's terms. You have a particular take on this as well in terms of like two things that happened in the labour market. Those two things being acute job dependency and surplus employability. What are these and why are these the drivers that we need to worry about for creating mass precarity? So these are indeed the, the features of our contemporary form of capitalism. First, in our times, uh, we have become technologically capable to produce our livelihoods with very little input from labor, thanks to technological, um, to mostly to IT. So there is this potential for decommodification of labor, for reducing our uh, the productive uh, reliance on, on, on participation in the labor market. However, this potential stays unrealized. On the contrary, we have more and more pressure to make us dependent on holding a job. So that's, that's, the, that's the paradox, that we do not, in principle, objectively, need to be economically active in order to satisfy our needs as a society. But as individuals, we are made to depend more on holding a job and remaining employable. The acute job dependency is the tension between the decreased availability of good jobs and increased reliance on a job as a source of livelihood. Uh, this can be resolved, I propose, not by artificial inflation of jobs, because this would be bullshit jobs. Um, it would not be resolved by universal basic income, uh, as I in the book, I endorse universal basic income, but I believe that in, in the current conditions, when governments are so indebted and uh, there is not sufficient funds to invest in um, uh, building up the commons, you know, in um, public services such as healthcare, uh, development of science, um, you know, that we need first to, to, to invest in, in such things, in the commons, rather than uh, making individuals uh, independent from uh, the labor market. So the solution that I propose is job sharing. Of course, you cannot really postulate, you know, like in socialist times uh, that I lived, the, the state would just give us each employment and say, well, this is your employment, this is where you, you work, this is how long you work. Uh, of course, we cannot, I, I, I wouldn't celebrate this kind of authoritarian distribution of employment, but we can achieve that by creating the conditions for maximization of voluntary, and that's important, voluntary employment flexibility. The, the, the capacity of everybody to enter and exit the labor market at will. Now, why is that both important and feasible? Because studies show that free time, a time not used in gainful employment, the value of free time is on the rise among all strata. 
So people stay on the job out of insecurity. And um, back to, to the idea of the precarity of the rich, it is the insecurity, the precarity that makes the rich work more and occupy these uh, jobs uh, that are blocked for many other people. So if there's a limited number of what we would call those good jobs, the middle class jobs that everybody wanted to get, if the competitiveness is leading to these change in the dynamics of the labour market, which is pushing down the majority, but increasing stresses all the way, even to the top earners, how exactly do you do job sharing in this way? There's a huge matching problem at the end of this, right? Because yes. you've got nurses who have skills, mm -hmm. and then you've got people like me who have, if I have skills, they're very different from nurses. We're not going to swap, right? How do you flexibilize it in such a way that this works? What does this concretely look like? Okay, look, my, my job is not to, to create social policy. It's the, the, the job of politicians and, and economists, but... But how do you imagine it? Yes, I've thought about that. Now, uh, so how to reduce the incentive of working more than one would normally want to? So I'm thinking about how to um, disincentivize people to stay on the job when they want to work less. Um one of the reasons why people stay you know, more invested in jobs uh, and in more jobs is uh, when uh, social security is linked to the labor contract. So you, dis you uncouple that. That's why I have proposed um, a trans-European social security system that is not predicated on participation in the labor market. Now, this kind of uh, citizenship-based uh, social security model exists in the Nordic countries, and it is a very good system that should be replicated everywhere. That is why, in fact, participation in the labor market there is, is uh, lower. Um, in the Netherlands, job sharing is almost the rule. So to American ears, this sounds weird, but in actual fact, there are real examples of it all there over the world. There are real examples. Yeah. yeah, they're real examples. It is not uh, really uh, something to, you know, very far-fetched. And it goes back in a way to, to Keynes's, you know, economic possibilities for our grandchildren. You know, he, he's it. imagining that by 1970, we're only going to work about 18 hours a week because of robots and everything else. And instead of which, the paradox that you're completely pointing out is, no, we're all working more and we're continuing to work more. I, will, I remember picking up in your book that in the 1990s, leisure time outstripped work time for the first time. But that was an aberration. Then it started yeah. to fall and work yeah. time really yeah. started yeah. to rise right. as the competitiveness dynamic kicked in. Mm -hmm. So yes, so, so so let's try and bring this sort of you know, to a bit of a close here. It's not that you're saying that inequality isn't important as a driver, but it's because inequality is absolutely imbricated with this more general phenomenon of precarity. Yes. That's really what's doing it. So, so let's close by talking about the politics of this. You don't like the term populists. And that's connected to how you see these dynamics working out. Tell us how you think about the political changes that we've seen in the past decade. How do you think about this from the point of view of precarity rather than either xenophobia or inequality? Well, if what drives discontent is precarity, it is um, not hmm, it is not a temporary feature. Of, of, of political mobilization. Now, pop eruptions of populism uh, are usually um, aberrations. Well, this anti-establishment sentiment 
that is driven by uh, precarity is not an aberration, it's becoming the rule. Because precarity is changing the whole landscape, the whole logic of political orientation. It has brought to the surface what I call an order and security agenda of very reasonable, you know, four reasonable concerns with physical unsafety, a concern with political disorder, concern with economic insecurity, and with cultural estrangement. So this is a, a, a very stable uh, public agenda of concerns that I believe will stay with us and will reconfigure the whole landscape um, of, of politics. Uh, why? Because you cannot comfortably align this on the left-right continuum. Um, it cuts across because there are demands for cultural cohesion, uh, which are uh, conservative. Uh, there are demands for social safety, which are to the left. So there is this mix uh, between uh, demands uh, that uh, cut across the left and the right. So that is why I believe uh, we are mislabeling the entity when we call it populist. It is just a new, a new a reconfiguration, config, a new configuration of uh, the political landscape. So, so rather than left and right, you reconfigured this between poles of risk acceptance and, and if you will, risk rejection in that right. way. And it seems that the majority of populations are going towards that risk rejection rather than more risk acceptance. More and more so. Right? Yes, more and more so. And again, not only the 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 people who uh, the sociologist Guy Standing described as the precariat. Uh, it is not just the precariat that mobilizes uh, uh, around the risk pole. We see more no, and more affluent uh, people with you know good, highly skilled professionals. What that suggests is that. The traditional left, which no longer really exists, morphed into a kind of neoliberal acceptant left, which embraces globalization, which in a sense invented asset-based welfare, is comfortable yes. with individualization of risk. They are seem to be hopelessly out of pace with the demands of the people who are clustered around the risk rejection pole. Yeah. And this seems to be something that's going to have a much more right-wing or conservative and nationalistic tone. Like the left is really going to get out competed on this. Absolutely, and uh, see, in, in when when we're precarious, when we're insecure, we long for security. Therefore, uh, you know, the, all this um, radicalization to the right is very logical against the expectations of the left that the the so-called crisis of capitalism will will bring a left a leftward shift. But uh, also the, the radical left is wrong to, to focus on inequality because actually the, the departure from the neoliberal jargon, the neoliberal logic is only um, on the surface. Neoliberalism typically focuses on individuals, on individual circumstances, on individual responsibility. And when we think about inequality, we actually compare individuals. We compare how much others have than, uh, as compared to me. Uh, so it is the same logic uh, focused on individual circumstances rather than on society as a whole. So the, the left, even the radical left, so you said that the, the center left is being neoliberal in its embracing of, of global, of, of neoliberal globalization. But 
But also the radical left is kind of, I would call it sclerotic, because it believes that with some redistribution, you would fix the problem. Or even, I believe that even increasing worker empowerment uh, and participation in um, uh, participation in the boards of companies would not fix the issue because um, the workers would get more complicit with the imperative of these companies to maintain competitiveness in the global economy. So uh, that would uh, maintain the logic of uh, exploitation, alienation, uh, uh, destruction of the environment. So this is not a solution. We, we really need to discard this already uh, formula of the past of, uh, and think what are the appropriate solutions to um, the current predicament. And, and as you argue, if the solution is something as simple and actually already tried as basically building up the public commons, reducing expectations and giving people time off that they actually really want in the first place, you don't need a radical agenda. You don't need a utopia. You just need clear thinking about what the problem is. And the problem is precarity. It's not inequality per se. That's right. And also because, see, uh, on, on one hand, there is a conflict between uh, the winners and losers of globalization, the conflict between the risk and opportunity. But since there is still an overarching uh, common denominator between the winners and losers, and this is they're all afflicted by precarity, we could attempt, you know, to, to create this um, wide mobilization uh, of forces against the drivers of that precarity. And in my reading of the situation, actually relying on a socialist utopia would get in the way of getting everybody on board because some people are really disappointed with that project, they reject it, uh, they, they, they do not endorse it for many reasons. But these people still have an interest to oppose the precarity that is generated by the competitive production of profit, which is ultimately what drives capitalism. So we could have an anti-capitalist broad front without all these labels. Yeah, this is very sympathetical with what Eric and I argue in the fourth chapter of Angrynomics, we call micro-angrynomics. Mm -hmm. Essentially, people hate uncertainty, and what capitalism does in its modern mm -hmm. form is to turn yeah. uncertainty into the generic condition. And people will Absolutely, fight to yes. protect themselves against those uncertainties. And interestingly, you know, of course, capitalism has always created uncertainty. It has been its its glory in a way that you don't rely on established status. Uh, you know, everything's uh, possible. Um, but up to a point, ownership of productive assets sheltered capitalists from the worst effect of capitalism. You know, that was their security. We live in a different context where the ownership of the means of production is no longer a protection. Mm -hmm. um, first of all, because these ownership structures are very complex, uh, even the working class, they have their, their, their pensions invested in the stock exchange without probably even knowing. So, um, you know, forms of ownership, forms of professional tenure are so diversified that you don't have anymore this clear-cut divide uh, of ownership that kind of sorted out capitalism in the past. Yeah, they took the upside and the workers took the downside. Now, in a sense, we are all embracing the risk of taking the downside. Yes. This means that the old solutions of the left, 
focus on property ownership like collectivization or nationalization of property or empowering workers, say, through increasing their representation on company boards, these old solutions would, will not do now. They're impotent against capitalism's key dynamic, the pursuit of profit. We've seen that a whole state can behave like a capitalist uh, entity in the global markets. China is a clear example. Uh, but also the workers who own collectively their companies would do anything to increase these companies' competitiveness in the global economy. And in that process would incur the same damage that free market capitalism causes. So this is not going to alter anything much. Uh, as the left is you know, hoping now. But, and, and, and here is um, the interesting twist in my reasoning, at least. We could attempt something else, something that has not been tried before. We could use the typical institutions of capitalism, markets, private property, the free labor contract, and use them to undermine the very logic of capitalism, the pursuit of profit. This is what I call a strategy of subverting capitalism from within. For this, we do not need a spectacular crisis of capitalism, a revolution or a socialist utopia. This is a very pragmatic, but also a truly radical move that will lead us to a brand new type of society. That's a great point to leave it. Uh, I enjoyed our talk earlier today. I really enjoyed recording this conversation with you. I look forward to reading many more of your works as they come out. And uh, it's been lovely to talk to you. So, until soon. Thank you, Mark. This episode of the Road Centre podcast was produced by Dan Richards. For more information, go to watson.brown.edu slash roads. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.